This program is a production of Restoring the Core, an initiative designed to assist those wishing to go deeper into classic Christianity, with resources available in a connected age, online at RestoringTheCore.com. This is the Lens of Glory, Class Session 1. Welcome to the Lens of Glory, a program dedicated to demonstrating that the Bible can be read through the lens of the glory of God. I'm Walter Hampel. This and all of the programs in this series of podcasts were recorded during Sunday School at Troy Christian Chapel in Troy, Michigan, the United States of America. The purpose of this class is to demonstrate the linkage between Jesus Christ and the glory of God as found in the Bible. Since the Bible shows us that it is written about and centers on Christ, the Bible also can be read with a viewpoint or lens, where we see that the glory of God is a dominating theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. A Christ-saturated Bible must also be a Bible which is filled with the glory of God. The following is the audio for this class session. Good morning, all. Good morning. Good morning. We will be starting a new quarter this quarter. We'll be starting a new class this quarter, beginning of December. Let's see, a few preliminaries and we will get started. Uh, One of the things I'd like to do for the class is actually have this, or have the class sessions set up as podcasts. Uh, which means it would be on the internet, it would be uh, available through the iTunes store, and I'm trying to branch out a little bit more to doing things like that. I already have one podcast going, and I'm trying to branch out into doing another one. So that's part of what I was doing during my summer vacation, so to speak, because I've been off for the last six months teaching, uh, trying to get um, a new website set up, uh, getting a podcast set up, and learning how to do audio editing and a whole bunch of other things. So um, I was kind of busy. <laughs> but anyway, I'm back and just wanted to let you know so that in case you're making comments, uh, if something needs to be stricken for whatever reason, I can do that. I know how to audio edit. So it's not like a stock going, sorry, I, I know how to record, but I don't know how to edit. Uh, you can do it if you need to. Uh, this will not prevent us from having the normal recording available through the church. So I'm not only wired up here, I'm wired up there as well. So we've got a little bit of both. Just to let you know, it's like, oh, that was my voice on my podcast. You're going to be available through the iTunes store. Uh, we just let you know about that. Okay, um, talk about the lens of glory. And I want, I want to do some preliminaries and set some groundwork for where I'm going with this. And just the overall understanding is that we are going to be looking at a way of reading Scripture that I believe Scripture itself presents to us. And that when you're looking at something through a certain lens or a certain worldview, it's the grid, it's the way in which you actually will read or interpret what you're looking at. Let's do some uh, basics on biblical interpretation. The art of interpretation, some will call it science, I think it's more of an art, personally, and it's often been called hermeneutics, 
Now, if I made a thousand dollar bet with you to say, let me guess that when you were having coffee or lunch or dinner in the last 24 hours, you probably didn't use the word hermeneutics in a sentence. <laughs> safe bet? My, my thousand dollars is safe in the bank? Okay, good. I, I thought so. But the reason I bring that up is you'll hear the term occasionally. People will throw it out. And hermeneutics simply means the art or science of interpretation, particularly having to do with scripture. Uh, the term, and I only found this out a few weeks ago, I was kind of intrigued by this. The derivation of the name, her, or the term hermeneutics, comes from the name of the Greek god, small g, make sure I got that bit right, Hermes, the messenger god. If you're more familiar with the Roman pantheon of false gods, they have Mercury, the, the guy who's got a little hat and wings in the FTD and he's carrying bouquet, bouquets of flowers to people. <laughs> um, that's the Roman version of this, but this happens to do with Hermes the messenger. So how do you deal with the message that's being passed along to you? Several key points, and please understand, you could have an entire class quarter, if not more, on the art and science of biblical interpretation. I'm going to try to give you only a few of these points because A, I don't want to bore you to tears, and B, I think this will cover what we really need to in the scope of what we're learning for this quarter. It helps to distinguish between what a text says and what it means. Because in a number of cases, we'll read a text and we're already doing the interpretation in our head and somebody asks you, what did that say? And you're giving an interpretation of what was said rather than what actually was said. It helps to make that distinction. And we'll be going over these in a bit more detail with examples during this class. Understand the role of context. Because if you don't understand the context of what you're looking at, you can really misunderstand what you're reading and what you're then trying to interpret. There's also recognizing the type or the genre of the text you are reading and interpreting. So if you're not reading one type of text and treating it as a different one. Sometimes it's obvious, and we'll see an obvious example or two as we're going along in today's session. But sometimes it's not that obvious. So we're going to take a look at that as well. Let's start with distinguishing between what a text says and what it means. And what I will be asking you to do, please bring your Bibles with you uh, every week because we will be going through various texts. Sometimes a Sunday school class doesn't necessarily compel us to get into the text within the course or within the, the session of the class, but we will be for this one. It's just the very nature of what we're doing. So let me read the text. Uh, here, and then uh, later on in the session, I'm going to ask you to actually, I'm going to ask you some volunteers as we do this. Okay. Then some of the Pharisees, and oh, sorry, this is from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, 
So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, passage here, something to consider. The text refers to three days and three nights. Does this involve a 72-hour period? As you and I are reading this, as English-speaking American Christians in the early 21st century, and we read Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, must we come to the conclusion that Jesus spent 72 hours in the grave? Well, let me ask you, have, have you ever run into this issue when you've been reading, like, wait a minute, we have Good Friday, and I'm never worked through it. There you go. <laughs> you would think it would, because it, like Jonah's not going to spend three days that might have been used to create the earth in the side of, of a whale. And, and so it's illogical to think that those are, are, are 72 hours. It would be, and especially the way that we tend to think in terms of time, when it comes to things such as scientific measurements of days, we tend to be pretty precise nowadays, and we'll, we'll talk about a 24-hour day and the like. However, something to keep in mind as you're reading this is that there was a figure of speech in the language of Israel of the time in which a day and a night could be interpreted as any part of a 24-hour day. So, if you had Jesus being put into his grave at roughly, I don't have exact times, no, nobody recorded that, Luke and Matthew didn't have a little chronometer, like, okay, third. <laughs> um, but roughly, let's say 6 p.m. on a Friday, Jesus rises from the dead, try to put the chronologies and the Gospels together, sometime just before, very shortly before sunrise on a Sunday, roughly 36 hours later. If we're thinking, ooh, 72 hours, like, do we have a conflict here? And it, I suspect, and I haven't seen this in a specific list, but we're running across a more hostile culture when it comes to the things of Scripture. So people are going to love to try to throw things like, well, here's a contradiction in Scripture. No, but you do have to understand the culture. I mean, try to think through even the way that we use figures of speech in our culture, especially for the folks who are involved in the ESL group. Um, if you're using a figure of speech to someone who's mostly new to English, I've seen it happen inadvertently. Uh, and the look of like, you know, they'll be looking at their friends or their relatives going, what does that mean? What, what are they talking about? Um, if somebody said that uh, somebody went down like a ton of bricks, like, well, imagine you're from another culture. Why would 2,000 pounds of masonry all this way. I mean, and you can understand where somebody's trying to work this through. So if you're not aware of a figure of speech, when you're reading a passage such as Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, you're going to default to the immediate way that you would be reading this, which would be as more precise, scientifically oriented American Christians of the early 21st century, oh, it must be 72 hours. Sharon? I, I just have a question, Walt, about the the uh, scholars who who translated the the earliest texts like this in the New Testament it probably would have been Greek 
Right. And in the Old Testament, it would have been Hebrew and Aramaic. But uh, how how closely do they try to when they're translating into English? How closely do they try to anticipate those those kinds of things for us? It depends on the nature of the translation, from what I can tell. Uh, the ones that tend to be more literal or more word for word, such as, let's say, the New American Standard or the English Standard Version, they're going to try to let those, if I can call it, tensions or potential misunderstandings remain in the text and then allow the person who's reading it to try to work through it. Uh, actually, this what we did read through was the NIV, and that, that's our church standard, so for teaching, I, we use the NIV. Uh, but, and I, I didn't check any of the other uh, more paraphrase type versions, like the New Living Translation and I knew the, the message. Uh, the message is... Well, no, no, I'm trying to say the right way for it, because I'm not the biggest fan of the message. Sorry, I'm not. Uh, I think it's useful as a running commentary that explains the text. Kind of a devotional. Yeah I, yeah, I think it would be, it's, it's excellent for what it is, which is a devotional. If you're trying to, let's say, do a sermon from it, don't. It's, 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 it's one person's translation, and I think that there are places in Scripture, this is one of them, where I think God wants that, in a sense, tension to be there and wrestle through. So when it comes to, the, to answer your question about translation, I think the more you move from a literal version to, let's say, dynamic equivalent, like the new international version, to the more paraphrase-driven things, you're going to find a way of trying to explain that built into the text. But it's going to be the author's interpretation of it. It's going to be the author's interpretation, which is why, for example, with the message with Eugene Peterson, it's one man's interpretation of what that text means, not necessarily what it says. And that I think that's a distinction we need to make quite precisely. You know, you're saying an interesting thing here. You've got here, it says three days and three nights, which is pretty clear. And, and you can draw conclusions from that and you can put a time frame to it. But when you say a ton of bricks, it's a different thought process altogether. So why would they take something that is specific and then interpret into a ton of bricks category? Well, no, I guess what I'm going with this is just understanding the nature of a culture's figure of speech. That, again, with a ton of bricks, we tend to use it as, well, I've heard it a lot as an American, or an English-speaking American, that um, you need to understand a culture's figures of speech so that you correctly, you, you've heard what they've said, now what did they mean? So, uh, I was using that just as an example. For some reason, that's the first one that comes to mind. But just any other types, oh, um, where did I hear this? Yeah, I actually did hear this in front of some of the ESL folks, uh, where somebody says that uh, somebody's going to um, take the field uh, for, let's say, a, a soccer game. Yeah, they took the field. Like, <laughs> <laughs> did they pick it up and walk with it? Did they, I mean, but you can see where that would go, that if, unless you understood the nature of what that figure of speech means, you're going, you're going to lose that. But what I'm trying to go with this, we need to keep in mind, here's what a text says, and here's what it means. Don't try to be
be careful not to merge the two instantly. Does that answer your question or concern? Well, it does, but to me, is why would they like, go that route with something that is specific? Three days and three nights is a specific time frame. Why would they go and interpret that as part of a day when we can conjure up three days and three nights? Well, the reason being is in old Israel that was, to say that something happened in a day and a night, um, it was understood that that could be within less than a 24-hour period. Um, to us, I mean, we're thinking much more precise. It's like, why that kind of precision? It, let's say we're writing now about some, some event that happens. We're going to be speaking with a lot more precision so that when it comes to, let's say, um, trying to think, for example, uh, we can even say something like, let's say, the Thanksgiving weekend, let's say for traffic, started, I mean, you go Wednesday at... 3 p.m. through Sunday at 11 p.m. And you can actually give the numbers of days, hours, I've been doing this right, four days and eight hours. I mean, you can actually speak with it with great precision. You can say the 104-hour window of travel. We, we expect that. And if somebody's then later reading one of our things, it's like, oh, they said 104 hours, and it actually meant 104 passages of 60 minutes. But when it, came to old, when it comes to old Israel, they use that term as a figure of speech that we could over-translate it, or over-interpret, I should say, in reading it. So that's why I wanted to bring it up. Yes, Sue? But where did, um, where's the third night? Like, you can see the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Those are day, three days. So where's the third night? Think of the day and the night as... Uh, sorry, I, I don't move around when I'm, when I'm teaching, if you haven't known that yet. Um, think of a day and a night in old Israel as a 24-hour period in our culture. So you might not have actual nighttime, the sun may not have gone down yet, but it can still be referred to as a day and a night. They say day and night. We, we say, say day. We say day. And night. They say day and night. Right. So their phraseology is different than ours. Their culture, we're together. The American, the English language is so precise, and the English, the American Western mind is wants detail, mm -hmm. whereas the Hebrew mind thought in much broader terms of meaning. Exactly, and that's one of the reasons I thought it was important to use this as one of our launch point texts, because it is one that for our precise culture, in terms of time measurements and the like, gives us the sense of, oh, they meant something different by what they said. The text is there, three days and three nights. Now what does it mean? So to answer your question, Sue, a day and a night in old Israel is some part of a 24-hour day. As so they're including measure. Sunday night, right. so even though they never even got to that. Correct. That's what they're doing. Correct. So, let us, any other questions or comments on that? Yeah, Dave. Uh, the, uh, it's a difficult task, but the ideal, I guess, is to try to read scripture as much as possible the way the original audience for whom it was intended read it. Exactly. So, you know, then that's, I suppose, one of the principles of interpretation. So, this was directed to Jews, Matthew's Gospel. I'm sure there was no problem for them when they read it. You know, they, we stumbled over it, but they, for them, it would have been probably no difficulty at all. Question. Exactly, and, and it can work in the reverse. Yeah. When you find the passages in the Gospels that say, 
and Jesus was crucified. For people in the early 21st century, and please understand, I know that there are some countries in which a way of persecuting Christians has been actually to crucify them. But in our experience, I mean, I've never witnessed a crucifixion. I don't know if I should ask anyone else here if they have either, but I'm assuming you haven't. And we'll say, oh, Jesus was crucified. It's one thing for us to hear that in 2012. It's another for somebody to be hearing that in the mid-first century under Roman domination. They knew exactly what that meant, the horror and the terror that was put onto the person who was actually being nailed to a cross. And you've got to understand, in the ancient Roman Empire, when somebody was crucified, theoretically, they could be up there for days. I mean, you might recall for the account when um, Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pontius Pilate after Jesus dies and asks for the body. There's a sense of surprise. And why is Pilate surprised? It's like, he's dead already? There are people who would be up there for days. And the horror, and I'm not even going to go into the description of what it was like to be hanging there naked, exposed to the element for several days. But the horror of that is something that we haven't comprehended by experience. So when somebody's hearing or reading, let's say, one of the gospel accounts that says Jesus was crucified, we have a lot less experience to bring to that than a first century hearer would bring to it as well. So it can work both ways. Uh, any other questions or comments before we... So to wrap it up, sure. so you can move on, you're saying okay. that this, these scriptures were written for a particular mindset uh, uh, of understanding that we don't happen to have. And so for us to accurately read the scriptures, we would have to come to know that mindset. And, and the end result is, basically, we're reading it wrong until we do. I think that, yeah, and that's one of the things about the Reformation, that when... The Bible was being interpreted, and you've got to keep in mind there are a few things happening simultaneously. One of them is that when the Reformation really kicks into high gear in the early 1500s, the printing press had only been invented about roughly 50, 60 years before. So having large or mass access to scripture was pretty much impossible in terms of actually possessing a text. Hearing it, you should have been hearing it at mass. In Latin. In Latin, being preached in Latin. So, if you don't have access to the scriptures, it's, it's kind of a moot point. But the people who are actually doing the reading and interpreting, they were tending to read scripture through the lens of allegory. Bless you. They're reading through the lens of allegory, which meant that they're, they're saying, okay, there's just a surface reading. It's like, duh, it's just, it's like the, it's kind of like, in a sense, if you're having an ear of corn, maybe some of you did this on a dare sometime, but if you like go to go to a good farmer's market or a buyer or whatever, and you have that ear of corn, you've got that, uh, I don't know what's it called, the green stuff? The husk. Thank you, I should know that. The husk. Unless you've been on a dare, or let's say it's your pre-Christian days, and you were drunk as this guy, and you did this to have a bet, you're quite into the husk without shucking it. You know, think about it. You know, who would want to do that? But where I'm going with that is that's exactly the way the 
the church at that time, or the church leaders at that time, saw the basic plain reading of scripture. It's like, oh, that's the hospital. Mm, who wants that? Let's pull that away and let's go to the meaty stuff. And they would come up with an understanding that was, I'm trying to remember the exact terms, it's like the moral, the spiritual understanding of it. But they saw it through the lens of allegory. So if you find, for example, a passage, I'm trying to remember where um, Augustine used this back in the 5th century. He, in the text of scripture, he was reading from Latin. It talked about something being stretched out like a drum skin, or uh, what you put on top of the drum so you could play it. Augustine saw that and said, oh yes, when you're looking at that, it refers to the way that Christ was stretched out upon the cross when he was nailed there. Now, we're, we'd be thinking, going, where did you get that? But if you're reading through the lens of allegory, you can put almost anything into scripture. I mean, the, fact, the idea that Mary was an eternal virgin was seen from the book of Ezekiel at the time. You're going, how are you pulling Ezekiel on this one? If you find the description in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, it has this really interesting vision that God gives Ezekiel concerning a temple. And I'm not going to go into my interpretation of that at this point. That would really take us off to the side. But there's part of that text that says that there's a gate, an eastern gate, that the prince, once the prince goes through it, the gate will remain shut. You go, see? That refers to Mary, because once Jesus went through the gate of her womb, her, I'm serious. They, this is actually the way it was interpreted, that it remained closed. And they said, see, that's referring to Mary's ever virginity after she gave birth to Christ. Exactly. And I'm seeing the look like, you're kidding, on your faces. But that was the way the early church did this. What Luther did was to present the idea of, you know what we really need to do? Let's try to figure out what the text meant to the first readers and hearers. It's called the historical redemptive method. And trying to get back to that. And in many cases, you don't need an in-depth knowledge of old Israel in order to read this properly. And even in the case of the passage with Matthew, even if somehow you thought that Jesus was in the grave for 72 hours, he got out. He's been resurrected. And, and I guess where I'm going with that is, yeah, and that was one of the benefits, I think, of the Reformation was the way to read scripture is to try to understand this in the framework of the people who were the original hearers and readers. Sometimes it's not obvious, sometimes it is. I chose this passage very definitely on purpose. Sharon. Are you saying, well, that, no, I don't think you are saying this, because I, I think there's a danger in saying that if you don't have privy to that kind of knowledge, that reading the scripture would be fruitless for you. I definitely would not say that. Uh, I, I believe in what's called the purpose, I can't say it, purposeuity of scripture. And where I'm going with that is that there's been a sense that what the scripture says is plain and clear enough about the things that are central and core to the faith. Are there some things that are obscure in scripture and remain so? Yes, even someone as wise and as learned and experienced as a Billy Graham can say that to this day. I mean, I heard an interview with him a few years ago in which he said that. And think, Billy Graham? Wow, he's been 
preaching since the 1940s and there are some things in scripture he still doesn't understand? Yeah. But it's not the gospel. That but he not doesn't the misunderstand. That, not, not the things in it that are for our salvation. Exactly. And, and again, think about what, what I ought to be saying here. And I know that there are some Christians who try to reconcile this three days and three nights ago. Okay, this must have meant that Jesus must have been buried or, or crucified on a Wednesday and rose on Sunday. And still kind of have a few issues you've got to work through. But also keeping in mind your past is to talk about that the day these things happened to Jesus was preparation day, which was a standard Jewish term for Friday daytime hours or sunlight hours in order to prepare for the oncoming Sabbath on Friday night. So that's why the church has, how do I put it? It's not like people in the early church saw the passage in Matthew and said, Three days and three nights? Nah, we're going to do something. We're, we're going to shrink it down. Some of you are just a little along the way. Uh, it's not like somebody did that. They're trying to read through the scriptures and say, okay, this said that these things happened to Jesus on preparation day. It must have been a Friday. How do we understand this? And then as research happens, you find in old Israel, you have that figure of speech we are talking about. Okay, good. I'm glad we... Let me discuss this. But hopefully you see where I'm going with this is think about how much inquiry we've had concerning what a text says and what it means. How many slides did you hope to get through today? <laughs> I, right now, I, we'll, we'll be fine. We'll, we'll, we'll be fine. Okay, let's talk about the importance of context. Without context, the Bible could be used or misused to make a case for atheism. I used to teach this when I was doing the Jet Cadets uh, many years ago. I said, do you know that in the Bible it says there is no God? The look on the faces was priceless. <laughs> no, Mr. Hamill, no. No, 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 no. It says there is no God. I'll take you there. And then I explained them the nature of context. Because, yes, the words there is no God is found in Psalm 14.1. So, atheists who might be listening to the podcast, don't rejoice yet. <laughs> in context, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There's no one who does good. So you see where the phrase, there is no God, whose mouth is that coming out of? A believer? Coming out of a fool. And again, something to keep in mind, in the Hebrew mindset, a fool isn't somebody who just lacks wisdom. It's not like the guy who measures once and cuts twice. It's the guy who is morally deficient. So it's not just a matter of lacking sense as we have it. There's also, there is that sense, but there's a deeper moral sense to being a fool in Scripture than just merely measuring once and cutting twice. Mm -hmm. There are types of literature within the Bible, and please understand this is not intended as a comprehensive, full list, exhaustive to the last type of genre. But you have things such as narratives, which are the gospel accounts. It's, it's, it's a stating of historical events that have happened. I mean, you could take a look back at uh, the books of, let's say, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First, much of First and Second Chronicles, not all of it, 
Uh, which are narratives. It's just telling you, here's what happened. There are parables within the gospel accounts. And parables are fictional stories that are meant to make a moral point. They're thrown alongside something else. If you've ever heard of a parabola, maybe you remember this from your days of high school and college, when you throw something, it actually makes, if you could track it, you know, like we'll tie that kind of thing, it actually makes the form of a parabola, and somebody actually noticed that, which is where the term comes from. So it's something thrown alongside something else. There's genealogy in First Chronicles, for example, the beginning of First Chronicles. Uh, if you want some real, really riveting reading, and I've done this kind of as a joke with some people about making sure we have context and that we're doing things biblically, try to imagine that you've got this married couple that is going to their pastor because their marriage is in shambles and they need biblical counseling to help merge them back together again as the couple God wants them to be. And the pastor says, I'll read a passage of scripture and remember scripture, this is scripture, so hear this and take wisdom to it. He opens it up and it says, Adam, Seth, Enosh. And we go, what? Adam, Seth, it's First Chronicles, chapter 1, verse 1. It's biblical. Does it apply to what they're doing? No! Anything but. But the point is, you have places where you've got these different types of genre. Poetry, for example. Songs and Song of Songs. Great examples. You can find it elsewhere within Job, for example. Um, apocalyptic. This is a very special style of uh, very richly symbolic presentation of ideas in which something can be projected into the future but is also making a present statement as in if you take a look at the book of Revelation um, I know we just finished Peter Orlando's class on New Testament Survey 2 and this came up last week for some of you who were here uh, that this wasn't that the book of Revelation now maybe this will be Revelation to you know pun intended um, <laughs> The book of Revelation wasn't something that's intended only for some point in the future, and that people in the church for 2,000 years have just been kind of waiting, going, okay, it doesn't apply to me, close the book, or it sounds too mysterious. But no, it does apply. And it applies in the sense that even in the first century, there were people who were reading it and saying, you know what, despite all the persecution we're going through, God wins, and we win as a result. Therefore, take courage, hang in there, and do this. So, uh, that's where you go with apocalyptic. You also have teaching, or sometimes you'll hear the word didactic literature. Nice, fancy way of saying it's teaching. Uh, if you have ever had the chance to run across a very small book called the Didache, it's one of the earliest, maybe the earliest piece of church literature that's not scripture that actually is, for lack of a better term, a church manual for how to conduct one's life. Uh, probably from the area of Syria, Palestine, or Egypt. Uh, somewhere around the year 100 AD, give or, give or take 20 years. But you have teaching that's there, and the epistles fall into that category primarily. So, got that going. Any questions or comments on this so far? Okay. 
when you're reading a type of literature, you've got to make sure you're not reading one type or genre within the Bible as if it were another. Now, an example I want to give you is if you're doing a reading and you say, I have, I have come across this wonderful account of a man who has interactions with animals and has learned to communicate like them. And I want to know more about him. So I, I read about this man, and I want to tell you about him. Well, let, let's see if you can get this. All the wonderful things Mr. Brown can do. He can go like a cow. He can go, moo, moo. <laughs> Mr. Brown can do it. How about you? OK, so you may have guessed. I'm reading from one of Zach and Thomas's favorite books when they were little. Mr. Brown can do by, by Dr. Seuss. Must be good. He's a doctor. <laughs> but you can tell, you know that this is meant as a piece of fiction. It's meant as light fun for kids. It's just, it's there. They love the pictures. I mean, I love doing this with Zach and Thomas and anyone else I might be able to read to in the future. Uh, potential grandchildren way down the line. Uh, but where I'm going with this is, if someone were to read that as a narrative, I mean, we just like, oh, come on, no. But we know, we know that. However, sometimes it's not clear to the person who is working with the text, particularly text of scripture, that what they're looking at is one genre and it's actually another. One of the ones I found, and this is personal pet peeve, happens to do with the parable of the prodigal son. I have heard a lot of sermons, I've heard a lot of commentaries, lessons on the parable of the prodigal son. Many of them have been remarkably useful. However, in a lot of them, the people who are giving their commentary on this will throw in things like, okay, well, the father, he was waiting, we're not sure how long he was waiting, he was waiting for a long time, and what was he thinking, and what was he doing, and I keep wanting to scream out, it's a story! <laughs> Jesus made up a piece of fiction in order to prove and show a moral point. And people are treating often this parable as if it really happened. It didn't. And when people will read a parable as a narrative, and to my knowledge, there's only one parable that might possibly have some narrative background. And I'm not even sure that's the case. And it's the parable of Abraham, Lazarus, and the rich man. Because in that case, I believe it's the only parable of Jesus where proper names are given. All the other ones, they're never given. So I mean, I'm leaving that open as a possibility. And trust me, I'm not teaching you that it is. Where I'm going with this is, please be careful when you hear, for example, somebody talk about, especially the parable of the prodigal son, if it's one thing to say, okay, if this really happened, here's what the dad would be suffering from his community. I mean, I, I understand that. But often it's spoken about as if the father were a real individual. Not. It's fictional. So anyway, I'll leave it at that. But again, recognizing the difference between genres of literature. And hopefully this helps as well as the wonderful reading from Dr. Seuss.
Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard a reading from Dr. Seuss while in this church. Uh, the first and the last, but it's, it, again, I try to make sure that I can do things that help make a point in something that we can relate to. Care must be drawn in attempting to extract principles for doctrine and behavior from narrative passages. Remember we talked about teaching passages and narrative passages? Especially in light of clearer teaching passages, and maybe one of the clearer ones that we can work through, is that in the book of Acts, for example, you have the early church setting itself up basically as a commune in Jerusalem. They all hung together, had meals together, fellowship together, and worship together. However, would this now be a principle of teaching that all of us have to live in communes, or, let's be more literal, do we have to live in a commune in Jerusalem? <laughs> I, I think we understand that's not the case. However, it is more difficult to understand in other places, is there a principle that's being that underlies, let's say, a narrative passage, is there something we should draw from this in terms of something we should live out or live as a principle? Sometimes it's not clear, and that's why it helps to make distinctions. Uh, going with the examples that are more obvious, I think, helps to start the conversation, so to speak. But also keep in mind there are cases in which it is a little hard to know. I mean, for example, Paul refers in one of the Corinthian letters to baptism for the dead. So it's, well, people are being baptized for the dead. Uh, I, had, I actually had not known about this until I heard that I believed that it's a practice within uh, Mormonism. It's like, okay. Uh, then I found out why they did it. But the point is, other than Mormonism, which I will go on record as saying is a cult, other than that, I have not heard of legitimate biblical Christians baptizing for the dead. So one asks, why did Paul bring it up? So again, trying to work through these passages, sometimes it's pretty simple and straightforward, other times it's not. But also trying to make distinctions. Again, what does it say? What does it mean? What, are, what kind of literature are you looking at? So when you read the Bible, have you ever thought about the way that you interpret what you read? because there are things that you are going to bring to it. There are some possible factors. Uh, your gender. Being a man or a woman can have a strong determination on the way you're reading a passage. For example, being male, I read Proverbs 31. I go, yeah, these are great, these are great descriptions of what a godly woman should be. Now, if I'm female, or if I were female, um, I could read Proverbs 31 and go, this is something I should try to attain to. Now, this hopefully won't be a disappointment to someone. I'm never going to strive to be a Proverbs 31 woman. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to happen. First, the male woman. That, that's a start. That, that kills it right there. But the point is, when, the way you're reading it is going to make a difference based on your gender. Your age, for example. And this can work in several different ways. Let's say you're on the older side and you've developed a more cynical, crusty, hard side of life. And you read some passages of scripture and go, repent, yeah. 
That never, that never takes. People don't do that. People don't change. Uh, or Proverbs 31. Or you could be a godly follower who, who has been a Christian for decades, and you could say, you know what? I've read these passages that talk about how I've never seen the Lord forsake his people. And I've been, I mean, myself, I have been a Christian now for 28 years. And I can say from 28 years of experience as a Christian, I have not seen the Lord forsake his people. As a 56-year-old man, it's 28, year, 28 years in the faith, I can say that. I couldn't say that when I was 28 years old and had virtually zero time in the faith. So you can see age can make a difference. Nationality. Imagine you're an American and you've never had to face, let's say, genocide like people have in a place like Rwanda or in Bosnia-Herzegovina or in Vietnam or the killing fields of Cambodia. All things have happened within our lifetimes. But there are people who have. There are people who are Chinese, for example, who are meeting in house churches who can't wait to get whatever scriptural teaching they can get. And if you want a really good example of that, read the first two chapters of David Platt's book called Radical, where he is in, I believe he's in China, and he has to give actually relatively few details about where he was at to protect the people who he was teaching. And they're just eating it up. And as American Christians, we have heavy access to the Bible, and how much are we eating it up? Sorry, not to inflict guilt, but I'm just saying, the way we read it can be uh, colored by our uh, nationality. Our economic class, are you poor, rich, somewhere in between? You maybe be trusting God's promises, or maybe you have been financially blessed, and you go, aha, see, this is referring to people like me. This is what God does to bless is good people and he gives them lots of money. I mean, you, you can see where that could make a difference. There's what I call a canon within a canon. I better explain that. The term canon is used for the set of books in the Bible which are actually scriptural. The canon comes from a Greek term, which means rule or measure. They would actually use measuring rods or reeds in order to measure things in the ancient world, and that's where it came, that's where the term comes from. And it means literally measure. What's up to the measure? What's up, we'd say maybe, what's up to snuff? What, what makes the list? And it's been my experience in listening to a number of Christians speak about this, that there seems to be a default that if you're going to be reading, you want to read, let's say, for example, the New Testament and Proverbs and Psalms, because that Old Testament stuff, that's like Bible 1.0. We got the New Testament. It's Bible 2.0. We got the better version of it. And all, I mean, both Old and New Testament is Scripture. And it still has its function. Old Testament primarily points forward to Christ. New Testament primarily points back to say, yes, the promises of God are true, and here's how they're fulfilled in Christ. But often there's a canon within a canon thought. So some of you might say to a Christian, and I'm not asking any of you in particular, when was the last time you read the Gospel of John? 
and then follow up, when was the last time you read Zephaniah? Now, your thought might be, there is a Zephaniah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not a trick question. It's not like the book of Hezekiah. There really is a real, there is a book called Zephaniah. It's one of, one of the minor prophets. But the point being, there can be this way in which we kind of shovel off part of the scriptures as being less important than the others. Then I've heard the red letters version. I don't know if you've run across this yet. I've been to a Bible study or two where somebody's brought up the idea, okay, when Paul writes such and such, he's writing, but I read the red letters. And they're referring to the red letters of Christ in a lot of Bibles. The words of Jesus are in red lettering. Those are more important than what Paul writes. And I hear them go, no, no. But there are some people who will actually do that. They will assign a priority and say, okay, well, Jesus said this in the Gospels, and Paul said that, and well, Paul seems to be a woman hating. So we'll just read Jesus' kind, peaceful words. Like, repent, or you won't perish. Um, yeah, there's a red letter, by the way. Um, one talk about the person who spoke about most about hell in the New Testament, Jesus, in red letters. But where I'm going with this is that it's a way in which we could read scripture and place less importance on what we're reading merely because the pigment of the ink or the pixels we're looking at on our reading device are in a different shade. Any others that maybe you've run across that, that people will actually, uh, how, how it changes how you read what you're reading? Or after all, life isn't treating you lightly. You have a perspective that's either positive or negative. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, there's a friend of ours, and I won't mention names, but a friend of ours who's moved out of state. And circumstances have not been easy on him lately. They've been very difficult. And he's been one of the strongest Christians I've known for many years. And I... I know that it's his grief and the circumstances talking, but if you were to ask him to read through a passage of scripture now versus the same passage five years ago, he'd be reading with an entirely different lens. Yes? I think one of the biggest things that I've seen in people is skepticism. Just the inherent, um, that's, they're skeptical about everything, or a lot of things, especially anything in the Bible. And, and so they, they, yeah, sure, they read it and they understand it, can't get to the point of jumping and saying, yeah, this is true. This is, this is something I can know. Maybe you found that a lot. Right? Yeah. I, I have, and actually you've anticipated the direction I'm going to be going with this, so thank you. No, you didn't, you didn't steal my thunder, but you've anticipated the direction I'm going in. Uh, David and then Sue. I was just going to say on that point um, that uh, people, uh, missionaries and people who visit uh, countries, say in Africa, and so where people are less educated, sophisticated as we are, have no trouble believing a lot of the passages in the Gospels which talk about healing or demonic influence and things like that. And we Western people tend to be, yeah, even some Christians, committed Christians, can sometimes be a little skeptical about that. I wonder what does it actually mean? Is it actually talking about psychological problems? I've heard that interpretation given to demonic possession and so on. Right. When it talks about in the Gospels and so on. But 
uh, some of these people who visit some of these other countries say that people, believers, have no trouble with them, uh, stuff because of their experience is so radically different. So. Well, good raising, point. You know, and raising the dead and all that kind of thing. We, you know, Western people can have a certain distance from because of skepticism. Oh, Sue. Um, and I think the religion in which we were brought up can really affect the way that we oh. see the Bible. Really? Yes. Unfortunately, in my case, I learned to kind of like zone out because of the monotone. You know, I was brought up as a Catholic, and I would just say fog out, and I have to really fight that now, and and focus that you know it's it's the living word. You know? So that colors my interpretation. It, it, it did mine as well. Um, I grew up Catholic as well, and I know this is me not than everyone else's experience who has grown up Catholic. But the, the collection of the circumstances in which I grew up, you know, just kind of pre-Vatican II and all of that, and uh, living in a neighborhood where a lot of people were first and second generation Polish and German immigrants and, and the like. Until I came to faith in 1984, I believed that Christ was waiting to slap me down, that if I had any chance of surviving, so to speak, into the next life, I would somehow have to get around Christ's inherent anger with me and that I would have to somehow go to some other source in order to kind of calm him down. You know, you know, like, Jesus, chill out. You know, somebody who could tell Jesus, chill out. It's okay. When I understood the mercy of Christ, his central place, and I didn't have to go through Mary, saints, a priest, or anyone else. That was literally life-changing. Yes. But it took years to work out and, and, and remove, so to speak, the lens of that prior training. Yes, you've been waiting to patiently. Well, I'll just one, one more thing that comes to mind a lot with people that I know is not so much, well, it is, has to do with economic class, but most of all, it doesn't have to do with what class you're in, but whether things are going well or not. In other words, if, if your life seems to be in order and you're not having any major problems and uh, you know, your health is okay, you, you just kind of take, you know, your need for God takes a back seat. You know, you're not broken, you know, one of the Beatitudes, you have to be poor in heart. And so, uh, and so I think that's a big problem with Americans is that they're, they're so well cared for and have all these advantages of, of relative wealth and, and safety and, and freedom and all those things that yeah, they, don't, they don't need anything more. Great. Yeah, and, and when things maybe go slightly a little off the rails, so to speak, I, I've heard a number of people say, I can't imagine things getting any worse. It's like, I can't. <laughs> I've been world history. I, I, oh, definitely I can. So, yeah. Um, sure. They don't say it's my education level. They say if you're educated, you you can't buy this. They yeah, they, they right. bring their yeah. their, yeah. their yeah. level of education and their belief in man's ability to uh, to control things. And we've learned so much more since this. We're beyond this. Mm -hmm. And they and they say I just I just mm -hmm. guess I'm too educated. To, to really believe that this is something that was expected to be taken as truth. 
Yeah, good point, uh, Jen. Kind of adding to that is, is, is the word frustration, because you, you have the, the Bible in black and white print, but then you rely on interpretation from so many different people, and, and there's so many different interpretations, you really do bang your head against the wall sometimes wondering which is the appropriate one. That can happen. Uh, one of the things I found that's been a blessing is that those tend to collapse down to relatively few. Uh, yeah, I know that there are a whole, there are a different collection of ways people will say things about scripture, but when it comes down to, if I could call it the, the guts of where the interpretation is going, they're relatively few that are there. Uh, let's see if I can sneak in, let me try, and anticipating what Dr. Henderson brought up a few moments ago, consider how someone who does not believe in the supernatural will interpret the Bible. Tell you what, if someone has your Bible, uh, could someone, or let's just read one passage, if I can volunteer either John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Sharon, go ahead. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on the hillside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, There's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had, had, all, of, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After, this, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come to Thank you. So, just really quickly as we're closing, imagine what you've heard just now, but try to read it through the lens or the grid of somebody who's a, uh, a skeptic, somebody who doesn't believe that the supernatural happens. How do you interpret a passage like that? Thomas Jefferson just cut it out of the Bible. You can cut it out, <laughs> literally. You say people just, everybody brought out their own lunches and added to it, so that's yeah. why. Yeah. Right, so. It, it was, they became, yeah. So it's not a narrative. Right. It's, it's an altered, it's something different. So in this case, you might come up with any number of different explanations, but the one you are going to come up with for sure as a negative is, this is not historical narrative. This didn't happen in time and space. It had to have been something else, but it couldn't have been what it says it is. Mm -hmm. And that's why a skeptical mindset or very rationalistic mindset is going to be reading scripture much differently. It will be looking for different things. It will exclude the supernatural. I mean, what do you do with Jesus' resurrection? You've you got to do something with it. So that's where I'm going with that. We are going to continue next week. Kept you a little bit over. Um, 
And we will pick up from here just some of the areas in which our way of interpreting can be influenced because it's easy to see it, easier to see it in other people, but not so much in us. Just, just to make it simple to the eyes of a child, we sometimes bring our grandchildren to church. Okay. And one of the sermons, ones from the girls, were their, um, the sermon was about Jesus being nailed to the tree. And when it was over with and on the way home, they looked and said, I thought he was nailed to a cross. You mean they nailed him to a tree? <laughs> it's all interpretation. Yeah. And yeah. the language that they used at that time, and now the modern child goes, they nailed him to a tree. Good point. Thank you very much. We will resume next week. God bless you. Have a great week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is all for this session. The PowerPoints which I used for this class will be posted on both the Restoring the Core website as well as the School of the Solitary Place blog. Thank you for listening to this program. We can be contacted at mail at restoringthecore.com. We're on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash restoringthecore. You can also follow us on Twitter at RestoreTheCore. Our original blog is still active. It can be found at schoolofthesolitaryplace.blogspot.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you join us next time for the Lens of Glory.